served him as a young boy. Now he is currently pursuing his graduate degree at Moody Bible College, and his heart is to go back to his home country to train pastors, which is a need in Uganda. And so um, I'm excited to, to have Richmond speak to us this morning and uh, give his testimony. So here he is. Imagine an eight-year-old boy coming home from school, and as soon as he arrives home, right in front of his door, he finds his father lying dead. And um, imagine just a few moments later, and his auntie coming to him, telling him, your mother actually is in the hospital. She witnessed your father be killed, and she suffered a cardiac arrest. Please pray that she makes it. Imagine that eight-year-old boy, a couple of weeks later, being forced out of the house that he lived by the landlord because the family wouldn't pay rent anymore. And so together with six of his siblings being forced out of the place, and then ending up in a place called Naguru Kasenke, which is one of Uganda's biggest slums. Imagine that eight-year-old boy assuming responsibility over his family and beginning to walk the streets trying to find food to feed his siblings. That eight-year-old boy was me. That life was so difficult at that point. I had dropped out of school because of my father's death, and he was not—he was the only breadwinner, the only bread provider at home. My little sister, who was eight at the time, Doreen. I used to walk with her. We used to wake up. We were tired of seeing our mother, who was already not in a good health condition, waking up and being frustrated that she was not able to provide for us. And then she withdrew often to pray, I mean, to just cry. And so we didn't want to see that as kids. So we used to wake up early in the morning and just go, go as far as we can to try to find food on the street. And, um, and so that was a day-to-day -day life, walking and trying to find food for me and for my sister. And then if we had any other things that we picked, would bring this back home to our siblings. Those times were so difficult, and I wondered often, when will this change? Change desperately needed to happen because I had completely forgotten what it looked like, food on a plate. I used to eat from the dumps. And I knew that if you asked me then, where do I see myself later on? I didn't see that situation changing. By now, I would probably still be part of the dumps. Or part of the dump. Change desperately needed to happen. And it did. A young lady called Heather, she was 15 at the time, accepted um, an invitation to sponsor children. And my packet was on the table that day. She picked up my packet, I don't know why, but I'm sure she, when she looked at me, she knew that there was a child there trying to leave, but didn't know how. 
and she picked me up and I got the news down. It was my mother that first got the news and later on told us as kids. Said, Richmond, a lady named Heather has decided to sponsor you right now. Have a sponsor through compassion. I can tell you, now some of you have been in Africa and you know how that there's a lot of dancing in Africa. <laughs> there's a lot of cultural dances. My mother danced so much. Um, you know, I, I remember her. I remember this so clearly because she uses her shoulders a lot for dancing. So it was a more presentation like this. While for me, it was mostly jumping up and down, rejoicing for days. Because finally, food was going to be provided. Well, they told, part of the news was, Richmond, you can now go back to school. Because that's going to be taken care of. In my community, the number of children that died of malaria, kids that I played with, after a week, you hear, oh, Benjamin is gone. And you say, how? I, I was with him last week. Oh, he got sick of malaria. And in three days, if you don't get the treatment, the child passes on. And, and so most of my friends had died. And living in this place where we had like a 10 by 10 structure, um, where all I, six of my siblings, fitted in this place, and my sick mother. It was so hot during the day. And during the night, it becomes so cold because it is out of metallic, just metal. You just get pieces of, of metal or whatever and just put those together and you slip in there. And the perforations that were between these always let in mosquitoes and every day living with the fear that I hope I was not beaten a lot by mosquitoes because if I get sick of malaria this is going to change my life forever and um, and so just the news that Richmond your name has been enlisted um, in family clinic which was a clinic that was close to where I lived that any time you feel symptoms of malaria just go it's going to be taken care of you understand the rejoicing and the dancing that was in my home. And now that I stand and look back um, in, in my life, I see that there are three changes that happen. Three changes that happen when you sponsor a child. The first change happens to the child. As an individual who is living every day on the street, wondering where the next piece of food is going to come from forgetting everything about school and that became secondary to what I needed right now I stand to say that through Heather's sponsorship I have a bachelor's degree in accounting <laughs> Heather loved me so much through her letters she wrote to me and in her letters she told me Richmond I love you She told me, Richmond, I love you. And I first thought, she's just trying to be nice to me. Because she doesn't, she doesn't know me. I'm, she just, you know, she doesn't know me. How can she love me? But then she said it again. Richmond, I love you. And she said it again. Richmond, I love you. I was not hearing words like that. My circumstances didn't say that at all. And she said it again, Richmond, I love you, until I finally believed her. And uh, the day that she did, 
said to me and I read the letter again and she put that in bold, Richmond, I love you. And the children of Presbyterian Church Sunday School, because she used to help with Sunday School kids, send their love on that day. It freed me from one of the biggest bondages that I had. I had a poor self-esteem, my self-worth, and what poverty had told me, you are nothing, nobody cares about you, you continue on the streets, that's where you're going to end. And that's my future, that's what I saw. And I had such a poor self-esteem. I was always withdrawn. And that day she freed me from that. And I finally knew, oh, somebody loves me. And then she sent me a stickers, stick, um, a pack of stickers. And so for all my grades, if I do, if there was a subject that I was doing well and got a tick, so it's a very good from the teacher, I put a sticker on that book because I hoped the sticker would attract someone to look into that book and say, oh, okay, Richmond, you're doing well in school. And that was good. And also as a kid, just growing up in a place where I didn't have much and I didn't look good because I had a protruded belly. I was all, kids didn't want to play with me. So once in a while I would hold her stickers. She used to, she sent me stickers so I could like see kids playing who I want to play with but won't accept me and kind of stand like this with my stickers. And uh, they're like, oh, Richmond, what's that? And so as they come, I'm like, no, 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 I won't show you until you let me play. <laughs> and they're like, oh, come on, come in, come in, because I listen to you. So I used what she gave me. I, think, I didn't think she intended for me to use them that way. But it was just like my gateway into many things I longed for as a child but couldn't get. And so my life completely changed. I, in 1996, something happened very special to me. I was at the project and we were told about Christ, a person we did not see physically, yet loves us so much. And he died for us, we were told. But as I listened to uh, the project director as he spoke to us about Christ, I said, I know what this feels like. I know, I know what it means to be loved by somebody you do not physically see. And I connected with that. I said, I know. I know. And on that day, June the 3rd, 1996, I walked forward and accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of my life. That changed my life forever. So the first change that happens, happens to the child. The letters that I received, my home didn't have so many beautiful things in my home. There was nothing beautiful there. But it had my sponsor's letters. It had the Christmas cards she sent me. She had... It was unthinkable to receive a birthday present, but then she sent me birthday cards and things like that. So those were the most beautiful. I had them everywhere. And up to today, I have my precious letters from her. My life changed completely. Not only me, but my family too. My mother was attracted to the change that was happening in my life. And one day she invited herself to my church. And uh, I cannot forget this day when my mother moved forward to accept Jesus Christ as Lord of her life. Now, I thank Heather for many things. I thank Heather that I was provided for and I got food and I become healthy and they began to check all my health issues and those were corrected. But I thank Heather that my mother now knows the Lord Jesus and for all eternity she will spend it in his presence. Six of my siblings, too, one by one, have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And now all my family praises the Lord.
generations forward, and this I know, generations forward, we're not the same. We're not the same. And so, the change that happened to me has impacted my entire family. So the first change happens to the child, but there's a second change that happens. The second change happens to the sponsor. She kept writing to me in her letters saying that, Richmond, I have put your picture on my refrigerator. And she had uh, children. So every time they saw me, they remembered to pray for me. And every time there was anything about Uganda in the news, she was interested. She wanted to know. And she was always writing in her question, what's going on? And, and so her life was not the same. Her stopping often and asking some of the children to join in and writing the letters, it impacted her greatly. Her walk with the Lord, the children in her home as well. So that's the second change that happens. The second change happens to the sponsor too. But there is a third change that happens. I said the first change happens to the child. The second change happens to the sponsor. But there's a third change that happens. It happens in the body of Christ. I mentioned to you that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ now. I didn't before. My family believes in the Lord Jesus. And the body of Christ has increased. But later on, I began to ask myself, Lord, you have loved me so much and given me so much by my sponsor. How can I even repay back? How can I give back? What is the best way for me to give back? And I was led to pursue youth pastoral ministry. And that is the one way I would give back to my sponsor by pouring the same love to my brothers and sisters at the Compassion Project. And so I pursued that. And in 2004, I became the youth pastor of the very church I joined as a compassion child. And I praise the Lord because of the opportunity for me to walk and pour my life again back into my brothers and sisters. That hasn't stopped. As I pursued and continued to pastor, I kept going up and, and ministering first to teenagers. And then I moved on to minister to college students because then I was at college and pursued that so much that later on, I became the associate pastor of the church. And I began pastoring without any Bible training at all. But I had the heart, and I wanted to do it. And because I was struggling in ministry, because I didn't quite understand what I was speaking about, I shared with compassion and said, this is what I'm doing in the community. Um, any training would be helpful. And compassion in partnership with Moody Bible Institute provided a scholarship for me to come and do theology and to understand what I was speaking about so that I can go back to my country and not just be a blessing to my church, but to many other pastors who do not have the same training. And that's what I am doing right now. I, you, I told you there was dancing in my home, but when I got the news that Richmond, you have an opportunity to come and study theology in Modi Bible Institute, in Chicago, my mother, she, she went again. She was like, I could not, how, how can this possibly be happening in my home? I know my home. I know. But this is no one else but God. And so her faith has been strengthened. She shares that in the entire community. And now I am here. I'm graduating this year, going back to Uganda to do exactly what God has called me to do. I'd like to say that I said there are three things that happen when you sponsor a child. The first, it changes them, it changes you, and it changes the body.
some of you probably do not know a name of a child right now that is living on the age, that is living in abject poverty. I'd like to say there's an opportunity. For me, I have very good news for you. Since coming to the States, I was given an opportunity to study at Moody and provided for some living allowance that was allowing me to have meals at the school. Well, when I looked at the cost of the meals at the school, I thought, this is a lot. <laughs> I could actually opt for a cheaper way to cook for myself and buy cheaper food and be able to sponsor a child. And right now, I'm sponsoring my own child called Benjamin. So this is a, ch a child from an area in Uganda. I don't know the area in very closely, but I decided to sponsor Benjamin. And because my sponsor taught me, my sponsor through her life, taught me to live simply so that someone else can simply leave. And that is a lesson I will carry with me. And so as I get to go back to Uganda and to get to connect with Benjamin and hopefully mentor him, this is going to be oh, my, my opportunity to mentor and to probably grow up a pastor like this as well. What my sponsor taught me, like I said, is to live simply so someone else can simply leave. If you do not know now a name of a child or you're not praying for a child who is living in abject poverty, I will be at the end of the table to introduce you to a child so that you can begin to pray for them and if the Lord leads you, probably to sponsor him. May the Lord God bless you and uh, may you have a blessed day. Um, 12 years ago, uh, I was ready to graduate from college and, uh, I was doing my student teaching and a friend of mine came to the place where I was living and he, uh, had a pamphlet, compassion pamphlet, not even a child packet. And he told me about compassion. He didn't know about much about it either. And I didn't as well, but he told me how, if you're just give this amount of money a month, that that child will, um, get the things that he or she needs just to survive physically, um, as well as that child will have an opportunity to hear the gospel. Um, today, 12 years later, um, I still sponsor that child. She's 18, and uh, if you're interested to see the progression of her life, I have a little, my attempt at scrapbooking. Um, <laughs> I've kept all her letters, and... Uh, to know that, that uh, she's being loved by a local church and to know that she is receiving letters from me and to know that she is praying for me is, is a thrill for me. And it's one of the most worthwhile things that I have committed to. That's why I'm up here. That's why I became a compassion advocate. Um, I would love to be able to afford sponsoring 50 children. Um, but... I feel like if I can share this with others, uh, other believers in Christ, that they will get excited um, about compassion as I am. Um, like I said, compassion is a major part of my life. My family prays for our, this, the children that we sponsor every night. My daughter knows their names. 
And she often, when Haiti, that earthquake occurred, uh, she has a little piggy bank, and, and, and she offered her entire piggy bank to give to that relief in Haiti. Um, and to see her pray and even remind us to, to pray for our sponsored children is, is, is awesome. So, um, like Richmond said, you guys have a great opportunity. And 12 years ago, I couldn't think of one reason why I shouldn't sponsor a child. You know, I was doing student teaching. I was finished with co- almost finished with college. I was making big money, right? Not really. <laughs> um, it's worth it. And the more I learn about compassion, uh, the more excited I am. Um, and it's all done through a local church. And that child is guaranteed to be loved by other believers, and they're guaranteed to hear the gospel and have the opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I believe all children deserve that opportunity. And unfortunately, poverty is a barrier. Uh, 80% of all extreme poverty in the world is within the 1040 window, which is the least evangelized part of the world. And that's the greatest tragedy of all, I think, is for poverty being a barrier for someone hearing the gospel, and that shouldn't be. So, thanks. Let's pray. Father, you're good. and uh, Just so grateful for how you work. I pray that you'd be glorified through our response to what we've just heard, through our response to your word. Pray that you would speak through your word, God. Exalt yourself and uh, be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Richmond. It's a, it's a blessing. We were talking uh, briefly in the lobby and, and uh, have a mutual friend in Uganda, which is pretty wild. We were blown away by that. But uh, um, yeah, it's good to have you here. Thanks. Well, I want to uh, I want to share briefly with you. I promise. Okay, uh, so like half of what I normally do, 45 minutes or so, um, we'll be out of here. But uh, I'm kidding. If you're visiting, all right, uh, teasing. All right, uh, and if you will give me a little grace, I have been in the bed uh, most of the week with the flu. My wife is there now, and uh, so if I break out in a little coughing, applaud or something. I don't know for a good recording. Turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. We're going to cover just a few of the verses, the second half of it. Does anyone need a Bible? We have a surplus up here for some reason. You need a Bible? Raise your hand. Okay, there you go. You're welcome. Anyone else? Okay, Ruth chapter 3. If this is your first time with us, we're working our way through the book of Ruth, verse by verse. And uh, if you wouldn't mind standing and just reading along as I read. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz, our relative, with whose young women you were, See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. 
Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have gone after You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until in the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her, all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Father God, you're good. Your word is truth. We trust you and we trust it. God, you are strong. You know my weaknesses today, God. I pray that you would work in spite and speak and move and have your way in our hearts today lord do what only you can do god bring redemption open our eyes that we could behold wonderful things from your law in christ's name amen go ahead and have a seat well i want to mention really quickly we're going to look at verses 10 and following for just a short time, but I, I think it's worth mentioning Naomi's attitude. Because you remember when this book started, <clears throat> some bad things happening in Naomi's life and dark clouds over her life. And you remember when she came back to Bethlehem and the women were, were talking and whispering, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Remember, because Naomi means pleasant. And she, she was telling them, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. And although the circumstances around her life were that, she has not responded that way. As you see the way that she has responded through this, she has not responded in bitterness. Her trust in God's sovereignty has affected the way that she has responded. And it reminds me of uh, something that Chuck Swindoll said years ago. You may have heard it, but I want to remind you of it if you haven't and let you know about it. Because this has affected me for years And has shaped my thinking. He said this. The longer I live. 
the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. It is more important than past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. I think that's Naomi. I mean, Naomi has had a bitter, bitter set of circumstances in her life. Famine drove her family from the house of bread, Bethlehem, the land of the Israelites, to Moab. God takes her husband. Ten years later, God takes her two sons. She comes back to Moab. Her circumstances are bitter. God provides Ruth. God provides food. God provides, God provides, God provides. And in all of this, there's not a response of bitterness from Naomi. There's hope. There's action. She's doing something for the glory of God. And we talked about that last week. I wonder what... Others see in in our attitude. We have Christ living in us. We have the hope of of glory dwelling inside us. And I wonder if our attitude and circumstances, whether it's in our home, with our kids, with our wife, whether it's in our neighborhood, whether it's in our schools, whatever it is, what does our attitude reflect? Bitterness and bad circumstances or Christ-centeredness and the hope of glory? Well, verse 10, picking up where we left off last week, it says, Boaz responds to her, may you be blessed by the Lord. I know if this is your first Sunday with us or if you missed last week, I understand this is kind of like um, sitting down for dessert or something. I don't know, like you just missed the main course or something. We're coming in mid-story. I understand that. I would love for you to jump online and listen to last week's, um, but uh, we're kind of going through the whole book here, so. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. And that you have not gone after young men, whether rich, whether poor or rich. Now, why is Boaz amazed here? Just to catch you up really quickly. uh, Ruth, we just read, comes and and lays at his feet. We're not going to explain all that right now. Uh, We did that last week, but... um, She lays at his feet, and his response is this response of surprise and amazement. This kindness that you have shown is more than the kindness that you showed at first. Now, what was the first kindness that he's talking about? It goes back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that that amazing commitment that Ruth made to Naomi, where she said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So this incredible commitment that Ruth has and gives to Naomi. 
Not knowing that there would be a possible husband ahead. Not knowing that there would possibly be children ahead. In fact, the way that Naomi presented was, there's no hope of that. And so in spite of those circumstances, giving herself completely to Naomi and ultimately giving herself to the God of Israel. And so she comes, but Boaz says, this kindness that you've shown me here today is greater than that. How is it greater? How is this kindness greater than the first kindness? You see, Ruth was Elimelech, and Elimelech is Naomi's husband that died. Ruth is Elimelech's daughter-in-law. She was not obligated to fulfill the Leveret law. She was not obligated to find a husband so that Elimelech's line and name would, would be carried on. She was not obligated to do that. She could have gone and found a younger man and married him. She could have found whoever she wanted. But out of grace and an absolute commitment to Naomi, she fulfills this part of God's law to Israel. And so she comes and presents herself to Boaz and says, in a sense, I want to be your wife. And I want to carry on the name of Elimelech. I want to carry on this name. And, I, and you're the redeemer. You're the one that can do that. Verse 11 says, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Not just Boaz, but people in the town know of what Ruth has done and her commitment and love for Naomi and, and her love for the Lord. She's a poor native person. She's a foreigner. And she's come and just loved God and loved Naomi. And people know it. It goes on, verse 12, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. I am a redeemer. Now this has to do with the whole leveret law and the process of that whole thing. And again, we've talked about that the last couple of weeks. And so if, if that word leveret law or phrase leveret law is like, what in the world? Go back and listen, okay? Go back and listen. Deuteronomy 25, uh, you can read that. Verses 5 and 6 will explain it to you very quickly if you want to do that. But um, when he says, I'm a redeemer, it's a fulfillment of that leveret process. What does the word mean? And we talk about the, re, uh, the word redeemer here. We talk about the word redeemer a lot in church. We sing it a lot in church. What does the word actually mean? To redeem means to obtain or to set free by paying a price. To buy back. To free from what distresses or harms. To rescue or ransom. We're going to talk a lot about redemption next week. The redemption that, that we see between Boaz and Ruth, but ultimately the redemption that we can find through Christ. But it means this, to set free, to buy back, to free from what distresses or harms and to rescue or ransom. In the case of, of the Leveret, the Redeemer was the one to rescue or ransom the family name and inheritance. The family name that would be dying off. The family inheritance that would be passed on to another family. 
the Redeemer was the one that would come in and rescue or ransom or save that whole circumstance. And so in this case, Boaz is that person. Exodus 6, 6, the Lord says this, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is a picture of what redemption looks like. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you. I'll free you from what distresses or harms you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. God says, I'll rescue you. I'll redeem you. I'll free you. I'll save you. And I'll do it with an outstretched arm, with a strong arm. That's a picture of what redemption is here. And that's what Boaz is for Ruth. And more than that, that's what Boaz is for Elimelech and the family name and inheritance that goes forward here. Let's move on for a moment. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. He said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. This is kind of interesting, right? We talked last week about the character of Boaz and Ruth. And here's Ruth who comes and lays her feet at the feet of Boaz at midnight on the threshing floor. And she's, she's cleaned herself up and presented herself here at the feet of Boaz. And what in the world? He's kind of in a good mood because he's just eaten and drank and, and, and lies down and he's tired. And is this, I mean, what kind of a weird position is, he putting, is she putting him in and putting herself in? And we talked about the character of both of them and the purposefulness of this and how she was presenting herself to him in a pure way of saying, I want to be your wife. Therefore, why then is Boaz trying to keep this a secret? If everything's so pure and good and character is upheld and, and all of that, why is he trying to keep it a secret? Why is he saying, hey, it's, it's still dark. You better get on out of here before anyone sees that you were here. Well, it's common sense. It's just common sense. Boaz has already stated, knows that, that Ruth is a worthy woman and he knows the motives of Ruth. And he knows his own character. He didn't fail and, and, and dishonor the Lord in the circumstance. He knows that his motives are that of righteousness. He knows that Ruth's motives are those of righteousness. But what will other people think? I mean, how do you explain to someone, no, 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 no. We didn't do anything. Believe me, we didn't do anything. It's common sense. But here's a point that needs to be made about this, Okay. Is this a good example for you? I mean, if you're a single person, is this a passage that you want to go to and you're saying, I'm a young lady and I'm looking for a husband. What should I do, Lord? Boom. She went in at midnight. Uncovered his feet and laid at his feet. She cleaned herself up first. Okay. Like, is that what we're supposed to, like, is this advice for women or men today? No, absolutely not. It's not. Number one, that was 1,200 years ago, and it was a part of a leverage process, okay? If you can fulfill either one of those things, or both, 
reconsider what I'm saying. But it's not an example for us to follow, okay? 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, Abstain from every form of evil, every appearance of evil. So if you're a young person and you heard last week, well, they were together at midnight, but they were people of good character, so they didn't do anything. Big deal. Don't even try it. Don't put yourself in those positions. Don't put yourself in those places. I wonder if I have as much character as Boaz. Hey, do you want to hook up tonight at midnight? Somewhere dark and quiet. Just don't do that, right? Ephesians 5.3 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. I love the NIV version of that that says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Not even a hint of it. Not a hint. Not a joke. Not a thought. I wonder if they were... Not a hint. So it's not an example... It's not something we look at things like this and say, well, if they did it, then we can do it and we'll be just as good and don't put yourself in those places. Be men and women of character like they were and don't go there. It goes on and finishes up in verses 16 and following. And when she came, to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. He gives her all these gifts, and the gifts show Naomi that he cares. And her, her response to her is just, you know, just stay here. He's going to take care of this today. He's serious about it. It's obvious. He's serious about what he has said. Let's just wait, and he's going to take care of it, and let's see what happens. Just to close up here, um, we're going to talk more about redemption next week, a lot more. But I want, I want to notice uh, quickly one major difference between Boaz and Jesus as redeemers. If you notice earlier in verses 12 through 14, Boaz says to Ruth, now it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Boaz says to Ruth, there is another redeemer. There's someone else. There's someone before me. There's someone else that can redeem you first. I actually don't even have any right to redeem you until this person redeems you. There's the difference. Because Jesus says, it's just me. It's only me. I'm your only hope. There is no other. Come to me, all who are weary. Trust in me. I am the way, the truth the life, drink from me. And so often we get it backwards. So many people want to go and find 
other ways of being saved, other ways of getting to heaven. And Jesus says, it's just me. I'm your only hope. I'm the only redeemer. I'm the only way. I want to encourage you, if, if that's not you, if you're in the position of Ruth where you need rescued, you need someone to come and, and save and restore and, 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 and put you in a right place, but in, in this case with the Lord, you need Christ. You need Jesus. We're going to talk about that all day next Sunday. But let me pray for you. Father, I pray, God, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would awaken and open eyes and search hearts. God, I pray that you would be glorified as you move and work. God, you have given us a redeemer in Christ. And Lord, even as this message has been brief this morning, your word is truth. It's powerful and it's effective. And God, I pray if there's anyone here who has not come to you as Ruth came to Boaz, finding rescue under your wings and only your wings, Lord. God, would, would you draw this morning? Would you save today, Lord? Would they find shelter in you and hope in you and joy in you? Jesus, you are the treasure. You are the treasure. I pray that you'd open eyes this morning to see that. God, for those of us who know you, Lord, God, help us. Help us to see that you are the only way, the truth, and the life. That there are children in Africa and children in Haiti and Ecuador and Columbus and Delaware and that need you. Would you help us to believe Jesus that you are absolutely and ultimately the greatest treasure that we or anyone else could ever find and that there's no other way to get to heaven except through you. You give us hearts for those around us who are hurting and seeking refuge and not knowing where to go. We love you and we praise you and we want to worship you. We want you to be glorified today, God. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, give them faith and courage this morning to come and talk to me or someone else and to find refuge in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.